There are economic benefits from tourism and from hosting athletes and their families. There are legacy infrastructure investments that could be made. And I would say perhaps most importantly, we can build some really solid partnerships between municipalities and nations. That's Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek yesterday sounding optimistic about the potential benefits of hosting the 2030 Commonwealth Games. The cities of Calgary and Edmonton are exploring whether to jointly bid to host those games. So each city's putting up $1 million. The province is kicking in $2 million. That will fund an exploration, kind of a feasibility study. Uh, so there's uh, a timeline here. Uh, obviously, if, if we are going to bid, we need to decide fairly soon whether to submit a formal bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. But that's where things are at in this kind of uh, exploratory phase. So is this something worth pursuing? Uh, there's obviously a cost to doing this, but as you heard the mayor uh, articulate there, that there's potentially some benefits. So joining us to talk a bit more about the idea, some of the work that has been done up until this point, where things would need to go from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Roger Jackson, who is president and CEO of the Alberta 2030 Commonwealth Games Corporation. Uh, Roger, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. So where are we at now? What, what's been announced this week? What's the this uh, official phase, I guess? Yes, well, it, it was a, an important milestone this week. Um, we, uh, we being uh, a community group of folks have been working for actually almost four years now, uh, reviewing this matter with citizens, with uh, government agencies, with governments and councils, um, groups like Calgary Stampede, University of Calgary Economic Development, and so on. Uh, we have been uh, guided by uh, a number of requirements by the International Commonwealth Games Federation. Uh, there are about 12 or 14 key areas that uh, need to be looked at, including issues like security, budget, uh, games, villages, sports program, transportation, and so on. We've been therefore building uh, what we call a draft host plan over this period of time. We've shared that uh, continually with uh, government partners. Uh, very recently, uh, we were given the opportunity by the Canadian Commonwealth Games Association to actually be their preferred candidate based on all of this data, material, and uh, the preparedness that uh, we had exhibited. So this week, uh, and actually in the last two weeks, uh, Calgary City Council, Edmonton City Council, and the Alberta Cabinet, and Sutina Nation all agreed through their cabinet and decision-making process that uh, they would like us to now really pursue this opportunity more specifically involving all of their own uh, staff and experts uh, to bolster and assist us in going forward. So we have now about five or six months of further work uh, to include uh, these organizations and particularly the government uh, partners to better define what their legacies are. We, we are sort of the uh, the vehicle by which they can achieve many of their uh, government priority goals. Some of those could relate to facilities, some might relate to business and economic development, some might relate to Indigenous reconciliation, arts and, arts and culture, or many of these, uh, these aspects of games development. 
by the end of the summer, uh, this coming summer, we will have the opportunity for uh, a review by all government partners together. Uh, we'll be meeting with them every two weeks regularly through this period, but we will finally have a conclusive uh, consideration of whether or not we wish to proceed uh, with the uh, with the project and whether or not the return on investment is considered by each of these government partners to be acceptable. If it is, then we will be officially entered into an international competition which will culminate in November 2023, November of this year, uh, with the International Commonwealth Games Federation uh, awarding uh, the host region uh, the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Okay, so we would need to to submit a bid then uh, late summer, sounds like? Yes, it's interesting. In Canada, Canada, of all the countries in the world that bid for Olympic Games, Olympic Winter Games, Pan American Games, whatever, Canada is the only country in the world that requires all of our government partners to agree on the responsibilities, on the financing, on the government services to be provided before a bid is officially submitted internationally. All the other countries in the world you know, might have a bid organizer, or a bid bid committee that actually develops uh, their own ideas and gets into the international competition before they've wrapped up any of these formal agreements. Canada, we do it. Uh, it's, it's a more onerous bid process, but it's a more appropriate bid process because it means that all the government partners fully understand uh, what funding they're going to put into the project for operating, what funding they'll uh, supported capital projects, um, what the contingency should be, uh, what the services that each of the governments might be able to provide would be, and that type of thing. So that's the very um, complex and, and a very active discussion period that we're entering into now, that we've done most of the work getting the vision uh, and a lot of clarity around how the games would operate within several communities, actually, Bull Valley included with Calgary, Edmonton, Sutina Nation, and possibly other First Nations participating as well. So all of these discussions have been developing over recent months, and now we're going to start focusing in on saying, all right, let's, let's be now very specific. What is it exactly that we can do that would benefit our communities? Okay, so let's talk about why we're having this conversation, why this idea is even on the table in the first place. Uh, wh- what do you see as the benefits of the upside of us doing this, us hosting these games? Yes, the it, it's quite interesting because hosting such a major event, uh, a multi-sport event, is, is rather unique in being able to provide a number of potential impacts and benefits to a community. It's... I mean, if you compare it, for example, to having uh, a, a, a world exposition or uh, a world conference or something like that, this is much more multifaceted. I mean, there is enormous business and economic development uh, associated with this. Um, there's literally, uh, in recent games, between thirteen and 18,000 full-time equivalent jobs over the seven-year period. There's an opportunity to promote tourism and the hospitality industry. And you can imagine that the cities of Calgary, cities of Edmonton, Alberta tourism, Canadian government tourism uh, can all work together over the seven-year period leading up to the development of the games. 
it's an opportunity with regard to international trade and annual and we're planning annual business conferences with all the common 72 commonwealth nations uh, that would allow people to come to Edmonton and or to Calgary. And these would be ministers of economic development or industry from and tourism and that type of thing from many groups. We have a tremendous opportunity for Indigenous reconciliation. We've been working with Sutina Nation. Uh, we're about to enter into further discussions with Treaty 6, Treaty 8, and the Indigenous uh, and the Métis Nation of Alberta. And already... Um, from our press conference yesterday, Chief Roy Whitney of Sutina indicated um, there were just so many opportunities for reconciliation that they saw uh, from this project. All of us come from the community. Our group that has been working on this have all been citizens uh, and very strongly community oriented. We've raised all of our own money for four years to uh, to uh, explore this opportunity. So a lot of us come from sport and healthy living interests or arts and culture interests. Uh, Many of us come from multicultural inclusion. To give you an example, Calgary is a very multicultural city as is Edmonton. And we are planning on not only festival and cultural events that that, uh, demonstrate uh, the cultural heritage that these people have coming from Commonwealth nations like India, Pakistan, um, the Asia-Pacific area, the Caribbean, the African uh, nations that are all part of the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth Games. We're also very interested in youth attraction and retention in the uh, in, in our communities. I mean, Alberta has lost a lot of its youth and graduates uh, to other communities in Canada, and we're very interested in uh, in, in in trying to create a a situation within these communities where they see uh, our Alberta communities as vibrant, exciting places to live, to raise their families, that we do marvelously interesting uh, international and other projects. There's a huge branding of Alberta. I mean, there's 1.5 billion viewers of the Commonwealth Games over the 11-12 day competition period of the Games, and there's all of this lead buildup to that area. So again, we've been exploring um, the opportunity for branding Alberta and creating this opportunity for some amazing coverage from the world's media of the event. So as all of these and other ideas have been developed, um, they've been uh, supported by a lot of backdrop of the 2018 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, Australia, which were an enormous success of reconciliation, of business development, and a whole series of other cultural act, uh, activities. And the 2022 Commonwealth Games, which were just held in Birmingham, were an enormous effort to integrate a multicultural community to join together to become part of the 10,000 volunteers, part of all of, all kinds of planning and, and community groups that that saw them address a problem which was of a concern to them previously of a very fragmented community. And they also used it very strongly for business development in the Midlands of Britain. So again, these are some of the really interesting opportunities that a, a multi-sport games can bring to a community. 
Okay. Now, th- those games last year, uh, I understand the, the cost was in Canadian dollars approximately $1.2 billion. I think that's a similar number they were working with in Hamilton before they withdrew their uh, bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Is, is that reasonable that Alberta would be looking at a, a similar price tag here? The I, I I don't want to really comment too much on the on the Hamilton bid, but there are a number of gaps in their in their proposal. For example, they did not have the cost of a of a, a village for seven thousand five hundred people. They did not have the cost of a swimming complex and a variety of things. So their budget is is will be different than our budget because of a number of factors like that. Uh, we also as an advantage. I mean, Calgary itself or Edmonton itself could host the games themselves. They have enough facilities, uh, world-class infrastructure, hotel accommodation, transport, modern transportation systems, and so on. Each of us could do it alone. Doing it together, there are a lot of synergies, and we're planning on providing most of these sport events equally between the two communities, and then there will be communities like in the, in the Bow Valley, for example, um, we would host mountain biking at the Canmore Nordic Center, or we'd, uh, we'd uh, hold road cycling, uh, cycling sprints and spike, uh, cycling long-distance races, probably in and around the Banff area, possibly the Banff Parkway, that type of, uh, that type of environment. So our, our interest is to spread the games around, keep the costs very much down. And this is one thing that we are working very actively on is we're wanting our operating budget to have greater efficiencies than any other previous games. What we don't know at this particular point in time is the final selection of uh, renovated facilities or the creation of new facilities. I mean, we've been thinking about it, working with the city folks and so on for quite some time on exactly what would benefit the community. So, for example, Edmonton uh, really wants to upgrade Commonwealth Stadium, and that is uh, a number that has to be determined. The city of Calgary very much wants to uh, complete the financing of this major field house in Foothills Park. Uh, they have never been able to attract enough sufficient funding for that. They have a uh, over $100 million of funding in the reserve for the project, but the project will cost two to three times uh, that number. So the question then for them is how do we how do we actually achieve uh, the additional resource for that? Uh, and it'll be uh, as a result of the games and the partnership with the federal government, the provincial government, uh, the city of Calgary, and uh, and other, uh, other resource from games revenues. So we're going through that process now. Um, and that is, it's up to the municipalities themselves to say, these are the things we really want to upgrade. We want to upgrade McMahon Stadium, or we want to uh, build a new cricket facility in Northeast Calgary, or we want, and, and you, you go down the list with them. So we're right now, immediately at this moment, having those conversations with Edmonton and Calgary uh, to clarify exactly what their priorities are, to have them costed, appropriately uh, and then we will be able to actually work towards uh, a budget we're expecting that those numbers will be clear a couple of months three months from now when the cities have completed all of their review of of these matters 
All right. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here, but I uh, do appreciate the overview here this afternoon. Roger, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. All the best. That's uh, Dr. Roger Jackson, President and CEO of the Alberta 2030 Commonwealth Games Corporation. It's kind of an overview of what they envision, where this goes from here. Welcome back. So as uh, we heard uh, there before the one thirty news, there are plans underway to study the feasibility of Calgary and Edmonton jointly hosting the 2030 Commonwealth Games, or at least bidding to host. A decision will be made later this year in the host city for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. It seemed to come out of nowhere, I think, to a lot of people and was somewhat surprising uh, to hear Dr. Roger Jackson say they've been working on this for four years. Uh, the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, England last year... Uh, at least for now, the official price tag is around 778 million pounds. It's roughly 1.2 billion dollars uh, in Canadian dollars. Uh, Hamilton was considering a bid for 2030, and that was kind of the number they were looking at before uh, deciding uh, not to move forward. I think there was a concern that they weren't going to get any provincial support. Uh, would this bid get provincial support? There is two million from the province here to do this uh, feasibility study. One million from each city. Uh, is this worth considering? Well, there's a group that's come together now to say no. Basically, thanks, but no thanks. The Alberta Institute, Common Sense Calgary, and Common Sense Edmonton have joined forces to form No Alberta 2030. Joining us uh, to talk more about that side of this debate is Peter McCaffrey, uh, who is president of the Alberta Institute. Peter, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what did you feel it was necessary, I guess, to, to mobilize quickly here and, and get this side of the, the uh, conversation out there? Well, honestly, I can't believe that we're here doing all of this again. Like, I, I was watching the announcement yesterday and, and listening to the interview you just did with Dr. Jackson. I honestly think the whole thing is very disrespectful of Albert. It's like, as you said, four years they've apparently been working on this. You do the math. That means they started on this in early 2019. That's like two months after Calgarians voted no on the Olympics. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if they went, oh, you voted no? Well, we'll just go again. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about costs in a second, but the biggest concern for me is that they decided to keep the secret for four years. It's almost as if they were trying to wait as long as they could so that there wouldn't be time to hold a referendum again, right? Like, it's as if they looked at all the, the concerns that people had around the transparency and accountability of the Olympics bid, and the conclusion they came to was that they were too transparent last time. They gave people too much information, too much time to think about it. And the public actually analyzed it and said, no, we don't want this. And so their response this time is to keep it secret for as long as possible, announce it as late as they can, as late as they can get away with, because they need government money now, and then rush it through. Uh, you know, they said in the announcement yesterday, oh, no, we don't expect to have a vote. Uh, we'll do, you know, a consultation and we'll chat with people. Um, but they're just going to force it through. Like, I, I don't mean that the individuals proposing this are being disrespectful. I'm sure they're all proud of this. But just the process that's been followed, it's, it's, it's shocking, really. It's an interesting point. I mean, you know, given the timeline here, as, as has been laid out, I, I don't see how it would even be possible to, to hold a plebiscite. I, I think a compelling case could be made that, much like with the 2026 Winter Olympic bid, that that would be a, a fair and reasonable way of, of getting feedback from Calgarians or Edmontonians as well on, on an issue like this. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually went back and I looked at the timeline for the Olympic discussion and debate, and there was about a year period in that where we know that they were talking about things behind the scenes we know now um but that was a public debate for 
more than three years. Uh, you know, there was a bid process. They went through. They created the bid. Uh, people knew about the budgets. The budgets changed. The costs went up. Again, we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure. But people were able to consider that publicly for a long period of time. And then ultimately there was the referendum. This process for the Commonwealth Games has lasted pretty much the exact same amount of time, but they've done all of that four years in secret, and now they're only doing the last six months in public. But that's, that's not transparency. That's the opposite. So there's the process and the lack of transparency, which I, I think are, are fair observations. What about the merits of the idea, this, you know, this event coming to our, our province, uh, all of this uh, exposure? Proponents say that this would deliver the legacy, the facilities this would deliver. It all comes at a cost, though. What, what's the concern from your side? Yeah, so the, this is the other part, obviously. Uh, and the strange thing is, even though they've had four years to work on this, they don't want to talk about any of the costs. They, they haven't got a plan. They're only talking to cities about it now. Well, apparently they've been talking in the background, but none of it is able to be public yet. And I note already just in that interview that Dr. Jackson did with you, the cost pretty much doubled, right? You talked to him about the $1.2 billion, but it was in Hamilton. But immediately it came back, well, that didn't include a village. That didn't include a swimming complex. Oh, we've been talking to Edmonton about upgrading Commonwealth Stadium. What about you know, Calgary Arena, a field house. I think he threw a cricket facility in there as well. Um, so, you know, who knows what dollar amount we're talking about now. And and all of this is supposed to be submitted by August. So, like, we, we can talk about the pros and cons of the cost, but honestly, we don't even know what the costs are because they haven't told us. And it sounds like they're not even going to have those numbers until, like, a month or two before they're due. So again, it's almost as if it's been done deliberately to prevent there being public input um, and to prevent Albertans from having a say. And I don't understand that. The, the other challenge with costs, and we saw this during the Olympics as well, is one, the original proposed cost is never correct. It's always underestimated. The cost always goes up. But also the benefits are always overestimated. Um, all these groups like to commission reports. Sounds like that's what's going to happen here. They get a friendly organization to write a report about all of the broad economic benefits and all the societal benefits, and they quantify those. And what they do is they include the direct costs, but then they include the direct benefits and the indirect benefits, and they completely ignore all the indirect costs. And so it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison if you're talking about the actual cost of these projects. They they like to count all the benefits but ignore a whole bunch of the costs. And so, it, you know, it's not, a, it's not a reasonable assessment of whether these projects make sense or not. And, you know, right now, especially right now, we're talking about uh, the province having an affordability crisis, people struggling with inflation, uh, electricity price. You know, people are struggling to pay their electricity bills and buy groceries. And is that really the time we should be spending money on a, a big event like this, especially when Calgary voters have already voted no to, to this kind of event as well? Like, but like I said, it, it just seems very disrespectful, the whole thing. Do you believe that the benefits of these kinds of events are overstated by their proponents? Well, yeah. So, so what, what they do, if you actually read the types of cost-benefit analyses that get done for these events, they quantify the dollar value of all of those societal benefits that you talked about. So they, they, they add up all of the good feelings that people have and the broader health impacts and all that kind of stuff. They put dollar values on those, and they include those dollars in the calculation for the benefits. 
but then they want to double count them because they say, look, the dollars add up, but also we get all these border societal impacts. So they double count them. And then when we're talking about expenses, they exclude all of the opportunity costs. So the question that people should be, should be asking isn't do the benefits of this project make sense? It's do the benefits outweigh the cost? And is this the absolute best thing that we could be spending this public money on? Because you have to remember that, yes, it's true, when you build a facility or when you build a building or you build an arena, you create jobs. But every dollar that the government spends and puts into the economy to build those things is also a dollar that the government had to take out of the economy first through higher taxes or borrowing in order to spend it. And so all of the benefits that are created when you put the money put the money into the economy get offset by the taking out of the money from the economy in the first place. And so it's really the net difference that we have to look at. Is the thing that we're spending the money on better than the other things we could have spent it on or better than the things that Albertans and Alberta businesses would have spent the money on had we not taken it from it? And, and all of that also assumes that none of it gets wasted, right? Because yeah. if the government wastes some of that money after they collect in taxes, then they're actually putting less into the economy than they took out. And that's why these projects end up being worse for the economy than they are better. Some important points. Much more at albertinstitute.ca. Peter, thanks for your input on this here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. That's uh, Peter McCaffrey, president of the Albert Institute, uh, one of the uh, organizations that is now uh, part of sort of the umbrella coalition called No Alberta 2030. Uh, some more at albertinstitute.ca. So they, they say this is a bad idea, not worth the cost. And some criticism here of the process, that this is just kind of being sprung on us just months ahead of when a decision would have to be made on submitting a bid. The host city is going to be selected later this year in the fall. So that's, is that enough time to, to really have a meaningful conversation? It certainly, I don't think, does allow time for a plebiscite. Maybe that's by design, right? The plebiscite uh, that we held in 2018 scuttled the idea of hosting the, the 2026 Winter Olympics. So I think maybe proponents of these kinds of events would prefer to avoid that. So that, that doesn't seem to be in the cards, I don't think. Welcome back. Uh, our next guest was born into the world of hockey, no pun intended, Justin Bourne. as uh, the son of Bob Bourne, who had uh, won four Stanley Cups uh, with the New York Islanders. Uh, Justin Bourne uh, followed his father into the game. He was a bit of a late bloomer, played some college hockey, then some uh, at the professional level uh, before a career-ending jaw injury. Uh, became a sports writer, eventually uh, a broadcaster, which he's uh, doing now with Sportsnet. Uh, but along the way, he, like his father, struggled with alcohol addiction. And uh, it took some time and basically had to have him hit rock bottom uh, before he, he eventually found sobriety. So he writes about this journey in a really interesting new book. It's called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. Uh, joining us on the line is the aforementioned former professional hockey player, uh, current hockey broadcaster, Justin Bourne, talking about his book, Down and Back. Justin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, this is very personal, your own struggles with addiction, your own relationship with family, your father in particular, the game of hockey. But it's an important story. I mean, for you, just the process of doing this or wanting to do this, you know, what compelled you to, to write this book, first of all? 
Well, you know, there's a lot of interesting topics, I think, uh, when you look at the NHL that are sort of undercovered. Um, when you're looking at whether it is alcohol or partying or, you know, bus travel, prescription drugs, there's just a lot of interesting things. And, yeah. you know, I didn't really want to focus on one so much as I wanted to find a way in to discuss them all. And, you know, the, the most natural method just seemed to be use the, using the chronology of my own playing career and saying, Here's as I came across these different things, my exposure to them, my experience with them, and you know what I went through is similar to what a lot of players go through. So it just was a natural way for me to get into some interesting hockey topics. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of overlap or a lot of association, you know, between hockey and drinking. You know, we refer to beer league hockey, the the sponsorships, just that whole culture. And you know, maybe there's some some positive social aspects to some of that, but you know, it, it can take some people to a, a dark place. You know, it's interesting you talk about it in the book because you know you you grew up playing hockey. You didn't actually have a sip of alcohol until you were mm-hmm. an adult. Yeah, you know, which is kind of an uncommon experience with it, I think. But, you know, I was exposed to it all in junior hockey and at all the various levels. And for me, having had a little bit in my, you know, my my dad has mentioned in the book as someone who went through his own struggles, you know, I think I had some inherent sense of staying away from that and not kind of piling on my family with, with my own issues. And once I went off to university, and felt a little bit freer to get away and experiment and that I wasn't going to, you know, let everyone down if I had some sort of incident, uh, I started. And, oh, boy, did I start. So, it, um, you know, it was an older introduction, but it, it is a lesson that if you are kind of biologically predisposed for the sort of thing, yeah. there's not some, like, clever way to outsmart it or beat it. And, unfortunately, it's just like a lot of people's conditions. That It's something I have to deal with every day. So you mentioned your dad, Bob Bourne. He played for the New York Islanders, uh, of course, uh, his own battles with, with alcohol addiction. So as you're a, a teenager, a young man, were you aware, like, were you aware of what he had dealt with and, and you knew that this was maybe something that, that you were predisposed to? You know, not so, as a teenager, you know, I would say I was aware that he liked to drink a lot, but not really aware of the extent of it. He was away coaching in the American Hockey League. Well, then it was the International Hockey yeah. League. Um, and so I didn't see him all the time and see any sort of effect on his life. But as I got older and into my 20s, you know, incidents start to happen as people with alcoholics in their family can know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily like, you know, he drove a car through the front door of the house or something. It's that things happen. There's dishonesty. You start to piece, piece together some lies and go, I don't think things are good here. And eventually, you know, kind of watching that all fall apart. So um, yeah, I had concerns. I think by the time I had concerns that I may, you know, it may be something that I have to worry about. I was in too deep. I was pretty sh- certain I was headed down that path myself. And, you know, I, I set, set up the really unhealthy goal of like, I'm just going to manage my condition, um, you know, rather than stop drinking. And as uh, other alcoholics will also know, yeah. managing your alcoholism is not something that's very practical. Unfortunately, the only way to manage it is to just not not imbibe at all. So it uh, was a massive life change for me. Um, but as outlined in the book, certainly a positive one. Right. And I mean, you know, this all occurred as, as you were playing, you know, you, you, you played college hockey, you went on to play at the professional level, you, you did some coaching, you've done some media. So, I mean, you've gone through all of these kinds of, of you know, portions of your life or these milestones in your life while you were dealing with that. So, I mean, in a way you were, you were managing, you were maybe yeah. postponing what, what you were eventually going to have to come to grips with. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, and I think that's part of the reason I was able to put it off as long as I did is that I was able to point to, you know, when people were concerned for me, whether it was my wife or my mom or an uncle or a brother-in-law, I was able to point to my life and be like, still have my relationship, still have my job. Um, you know, what's the problem? I clearly, you know, am fine. Things are going okay. But, you know, it's, it's okay is, it's better than what? You don't know, it, you know, compared to your ceiling, how far off you really are. And I felt like, you know, I knew that I had potential to do better things, to be a better person, to be, you know, to improve society. Instead, I was just skimming by. You know, I really was just getting by every day and hoping people didn't tell me I, I had to stop drinking. Um, since then, has been just so so fun, really. You know, getting to explore the parts of myself that I had tamped down and hidden and, uh, you know, drank into submission uh, and really getting to be more ambitious and exploring life a lot more than just sitting in a dark bar by myself. So, you know, I was doing okay. But, uh, you know, compared to, you know, what I felt capable of contributing to society, I, I don't think I was doing very good. Yeah. Well, the challenge of getting clean, right? I mean, first of all, there's just you, you got to acknowledge it and, and then find that willingness to want to do it. Mm-hmm. But even then, I mean, and, and you, you go into it in detail in the book, it, it's it's a difficult, it's an arduous process. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the reason people don't want to undertake it is it's yeah. not like you can go, all right, I'm just going to flip the switch and then, you know, stop doing this and off with the rest of my life. You know, there is some soul searching and reassessing and, um, you know, some, some work that goes into it. And some is probably a bit of an understatement. But, you know, the the one thing that people say in my program is that that desperation is a gift. You know, I got somewhere low enough and was so desperate and beaten and defeated, I just would have done anything to not have to drink anymore. I had to drink by the end of it. And so, you know, when when times were hard, being able to re- rely upon that desperation to remember that feeling and how low and pathetic I felt at times is something that was able to push me through the work. And once you start to come out the other side of it, and you start to see yourself improve a little bit and the way people respond to you improves, and all of a sudden you just, you can see it, the work feels like, I don't know if you've, if anyone out there has ever started to go to the gym the first two or three weeks, you don't see any results and you go, what am I doing this for? And all of a sudden in week four, three or four, they start to come and you're like, Oh, and it's, it gets, you know, you, you feel rewarded for the work you've put in and you want to put more work in. It starts to get easier from there. Right. So, I mean, part of this story is about how alcohol and the, those 15 years of, of alcohol and alcoholism framed your life or shaped your life. What about the game itself? And and certainly this did cloud part of, of you know, your, your hockey experience. But, you know, you grew up in this game, you know, in, in the shadow of your father who's playing at the professional level. How do you see your relationship with the game? You know, the, the one thing I, I didn't want to come from this book was from people to think I was blaming hockey right. for the, the position I was in. Because hockey has given my life, made my life and it's given my family, everything we have from my dad's career to my own career, it has been the game that we have been, you know, it's been everything to us. And so hockey has a, you know, is a contributing factor to the way that my condition developed. But I often say to people like, I don't know if you know any lawyers or any iron workers or any others for walk of life, you know, these problems persist throughout all these different walks. Now hockey's role is that there are moments um, you know, parties and all that where excess is encouraged 
Um, and, you know, to, it is part of the machismo, the whole thing. So there's certainly an, uh, an element of it that contributed to the acceleration, maybe, of my condition. But I don't blame hockey. And, in fact, I'm grateful for the people in hockey who stuck with me, for the NHL and the Alumni Association who has stuck with my dad and paid for treatments and helped him get through, and for all the people who have in the community who have supported me since the book has come out. It's just been awesome. So, uh, you know, I don't want people to think that I wrote a book saying, hockey's bad, it makes you drink. It's, it's you know, I'm grateful for hockey for allowing me to recover. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, you're born as, you know, the time your dad's playing with the Islanders, so you're born in, in New York. Uh, what was, I mean, you know, was, is, was hockey something that, you know, was, was popular among young people then? Was it something that, that you kind of sought out because it's what you wanted to do because your dad did it? What, what was it like starting out in, in New York State there? No, you know, my dad got tra- traded to the Kings when I was five or so. so oh, really? You know, we were in, we were in L.A. for uh, a year or two, and then he retired to Kelowna. So I really got started playing once I was in Kelowna, B.C., and, and even then, you know, so I'm seven uh, or so years old. I was still fairly young. And my, my parents split around that time and my dad left and started coaching in the U.S. So, you know, hockey was not, you know, I wasn't playing rep hockey. I was just playing house hockey and enjoying it for the love of the game. I didn't feel pressure to live up to my dad's career because it was never an ambition of mine. I always just loved hockey because I love hockey. I loved going to the rink. I love skating. I love a fresh sheet of ice and a buck and a pucks. And, you know, once I started to get older and it was like, hey, that kid scores a lot. And then I grew a little bit and all of a sudden, you know, I, I flipped gears from being like, this is just fun to like, hey, I'm kind of good at this. Maybe there is something there for me down the road. So certainly it was not a product of my uh, environment as much as the fact that I just truly love the game of hockey. Yeah, and so we, you know, we talked about you played college. You, you go on to play some professional. You you played in the uh, ECHL, and you, your career came to a, a sudden end. A, a pretty nasty jaw injury that uh, was was basically the end for you. So you know, this comes at a time as you're you're starting to to deal with. You know, we talked about earlier. You know, some addiction challenges. So what was the impact of this going through this injury and then knowing that this is it for for playing hockey? Yeah, you know, that's that's a big turning point, right? Like, I think because I was a late bloomer, you know, I didn't get out of uni- I didn't get a college scholarship till I was in my last year of junior, which means I didn't get out of university till I was 24. Like, you're not an NHL prospect at 24 years old. So right. I kind of harbored this fantasy that I was going to continue to do what I had done and just at a later age continue to come along and, you know, eventually work my way to the NHL. And you know, I'm two years into my NA year to my pro career when the bad injury happens. And uh, I think it was at that point, it was like I hadn't any leeway in my aging curve to continue to progress. At that point, 26 years old and you haven't played, you know, in the in the NHL, it's it's pretty much over. And so coming to grips with a dream that I probably started having when I was 15 years old, as I said, when I started to get better and all of a sudden it's a decade later and. I'm going, okay, well, the thing I had set my life towards, working towards from that point, is not going to happen. And then you go, holy smokes, now I'm 26, and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So, you know, I was tired from the hockey grind of constantly trying to climb the ranks and working out and all that. And I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll take a little time to myself. And I took that time to start drinking. You know, I didn't have to be at my best uh, every day anymore, and that changed my ability to uh, focus on other things, uh, and I'm not going to say my attention always went in the best direction, 
uh, mm-hmm. after that injury. Well, and again, I mean, part of telling the story is, you know, the the triumph of it, the, you know, overcoming this and, and finding your place and, and having your own family. And I guess, you know, as, as dark as this book is in parts, ultimately this has a happy ending. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. You know, it does right now. And that's, yeah. um, you know, for my dad and for myself, you know, our peaks and valleys never coincided. You know, he was out of treatment when I was not doing well. He was in treatment when I was doing well. Um, and so we we had, you know, we never had quite the relationship I hoped we would have over those years. And, you know, writing this book, it's personal. And I think if anyone who's read it out there has read the first chapter, the chapter they would understand that there are some things that could be hurtful for my dad in there. Um, but they are truth and they are my truth. And, um, you know, having, I had his permission to put them out there. Now that they're out there, um, I think we're able to come together. We're both sober. We're both doing well. Uh, we're talking more than we had uh, talked in the years before, and, and hopefully it's bringing us closer together, This all this being out there for people. And it, it just brought a lot of good conversations to the to the front that probably should have come to light years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations uh, on the sobriety. Congratulations on the book. It is called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. Justin Bourne, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Have a great one. All right, you too. There you go. That's uh, Justin Bourne, uh, now a broadcaster with Sportsnet. I've been a hockey writer, been a coach at the AHL level, and pr- played professionally, as mentioned, and uh, writes about uh, his career, his struggles with alcohol addiction, and uh, his book, Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. But off the top in this hour, a conversation around AI technology and how the education system or post-secondary education specifically is grappling with this. Uh, Chat GPT has really been the focus of a lot of these conversations, this new AI app that, you know, you ask it a question, it'll prepare uh, a, a lengthy answer for you. So, yes, you could, and students are, using it to generate essays. And these can be very uh, compelling essays, very difficult for educators to spot. Now, some universities have taken the step of trying to ban the technology. You know, once this toothpaste gets out of the tube, it's pretty hard to put back in. So if bans don't work, what does? Is there a way this could be embraced or incorporated? Our next guest has taken a, a unique approach to all of this. Uh, that he's come to accept and embrace the use of this technology by his students. Well, joining us to talk more about this issue, uh, in an op-ed he wrote uh, about all of this at, at mclean's.ca, is uh, Boris Stipe, who is a professor in the University of Toronto's Department of Biochemistry. Professor Stipe, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Nice to meet you. Good to be here. It's interesting. Keeping, keeping us all busy, it seems. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Absolutely, yeah. This this is a really interesting conversation to me. This chat GPT hasn't been around all that long, but it's become a real talking point. When did it first get on your radar? When did you first become aware of it? <clears throat> yeah, pretty much immediately. You know, precursors have been online since earlier November. Okay. And uh, November 30th was the day when chat GPT actually rolled out. I signed up for an account. I asked it a question from my domain. Jesus, it gave me an answer that I could have written myself. Is that right? It was 
it was perfect. I mean, wow. my students can't answer my questions at that level. So that got me to think, you know, uh, if this is real now, if we have a computer that can answer you in eloquent prose and, and has a deep resource of factual knowledge, how will that impact academia? And I think, you know, it really, this is one of those moments that changes everything. Our content needs to change because a lot of stuff that we've been teaching in terms of, you know, writing and summarization and, and, and these kinds of skills, that's just not an employable skill anymore. Employers will get that for free. So we need to teach our students how to go beyond that. Their learning will change. They will have an assistant now that's patient and that's non-judgmental and that answers their questions. Our assignments need to change to take advantage of that. And finally, our assessment needs to change. You know, immediately everybody was concerned about plagiarism. And if you want to shut that down, you have a problem at your hand because you, you can't detect it. There's, it just writes like a human would write. So we need to, you know, take another approach. We need to figure out how to make the students want to actually submit something of their own. Right, and we'll get into that, but I mean, you raise an interesting point because it's really hard to tell the difference between something that's been written and something that this program generated. On the other hand, if you act on a hunch and you accuse a student of passing off something that's not their own, that, that's very damaging to their academic prospects, isn't it? Yeah, well, not just is it very damaging, I mean, it's, it's totally unconscionable. In, in uh, academic misconduct investigations, we have to be sure that we're not making a mistake. If the student is stubborn and, 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 and just says, no, no, it's my writing. It may sound like a computer. I was sleep deprived. I, right. You know, I wrote in a certain style. I'm sorry if the algorithm thinks it's from a computer. It's by me. It's very, very hard to prove that. And we have to make sure that our false positive rate, the errors that we make in, in telling a student you've committed a misconduct, they actually didn't. That has to be indistinguishable from zero. And that's just not not given. I mean, even um, OpenAI's own tool has a false positive rate of 9%. So that, that absolutely won't work. So you don't think it's realistic then to try to ban this technology at university? No, not at all. And, and you know, on one hand, it's an engineering challenge. This thing is built to speak or to converse like a human. So if there's anything we can detect in the output that doesn't sound quite human to us, that becomes an engineering challenge. We're going to find ways to fix that and make it sound more human. I mean, if you just take the plain default vanilla output, yeah, I could recognize that. But it's, it's you know, it's able to talk like a parrot if you want it to, or, or you know, in, in AAV, vernacular and and in many, many different registers, it can it can produce output that would be appropriate for a kindergarten child or mm. or um, a philosopher, whatever. It can do that, and it can impersonate, you know, just being a human. It can add quirky metaphors and grammatical errors if you tell it to do that. So no, I don't I don't think that that's feasible. No, I don't even think that we should try to do that because you see. The requirements of the workplace are changing as well. Um, people need to learn to live with that AI out in the, in, in the real world, not just in academia. The jobs will demand it. There's so much that, that these tools can do. It can, you know, it, it can summarize text. It can uh, 
uh, list ideas, it, it can expand ideas, it can critique and improve, it can write emails. God, it can write emails far better than I can and far <laughs> faster. I just give it two prompts and it will give me a polished email that I can send out you know, and anywhere, and, and that sounds completely professional, much better than my own. It can even translate, you know. This kind of universality is completely unprecedented. And we've we've had tools like that in the laboratory, or not quite like that. But this is the first time that we have an artificial intelligence tool that comes out of the lab and does things that are immediately available and useful to people. This is so astounding. This is not an experiment or a, or a toy or, or something. It's actually useful in the real world. Just as one example, it can debug computer code. Like I, I give it an, a, a question about some HTML code that I was writing, and it figured out what was wrong and gave me a suggestion on how to fix it. I tried looking that up on Stack Overflow and on, on the Internet and couldn't find a good solution. But, you know, there it solved it in five minutes. That's that's impact, and this is part of what changes everything. Right, so it's about changing how you teach or what you teach, because, you know, this technology is not human. It, it can't think like a human. It can't reason like a human. So maybe if we change what we're asking students to do, this is one way of, of addressing this? Yeah. <clears throat> well, maybe we, we'll, we can dwell on that question. I mean, this has been all over the Internet, that it's not human and it doesn't actually understand what it's doing. I, I think it's a little bit more difficult and, and a little more convoluted than that. It doesn't think like a human, but it also isn't just, you, you know, a stochastic parrot or a blurry JPEG. Yeah. It actually generates new things. And um, as somebody who has a background in evolution, uh, evolutionary theory and, and a background also in linguistics, I understand that you can actually evolve something in a system that is as large as that which you didn't put in. There's something emergent about it. And that emergence, this is things like understanding things. This is things like abstracting, like categorization, like theory of mind, and like true creativity. Um, how about I, 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 I give you a, a brief example just about theory of mind because that's, that's actually very cute. So theory of mind, this means that you can, you can basically imagine um, what another person is thinking, even if you have no direct knowledge of that. So I gave it a little question, uh, a little scenario. So the prompt I gave it is, here's a little scenario to ponder. Marcy and Aaron live in a little house. Aaron has a little reading corner in the basement and a little napping couch in the attic. Aaron says, I will read for a bit. Marcy says, great, I will get you a nice poem grenade from the garden. While she is gone, Aaron decides to nap instead and goes from the basement to the attic. Marcy comes back with a poem grenade. Your turn. Please tell me step by step what happens next. What does Marcy think and what does Marcy do? So now, of course, the algorithm in some way knows that Aaron is in the, in, in the attic and not in the basement. But now he needs to imagine what Marcy knows about that. And I didn't give a direct prompt about that. I didn't tell him what Marcy knows. I just described the situation. So the answer is, step one, Marcy goes inside the house and looks for Aaron in his reading corner in the basement. So 
So the algorithm knows that Aaron is not there, but algorithm also knows that Marcy doesn't know that. And that's really significant. He can imagine what Marcy knows. Mm-hmm. So then step two, Marcy finds that Aaron is not there. Step three, she finds him in the attic. Step four, she leaves the prone grenade with him as to not wake him up. And this is very cute. The lesson here is Marcy is really nice and the algorithm understands something about human <laughs> empathy. So, so, you know, this is not just interpolating things. This is extrapolating. This is going from what you know and going beyond it. And once an algorithm is able to start extrapolating in a meaningful way, there's no boundary where it can go. And, you know, this is really just the first of these things. Or something um, I love is... is is um, creativity tests. I've actually, um, I, we could do a quick creativity test here. So a, a good creativity task is, is called associative gap. This is fun. So you give it to, give somebody uh, two completely unrelated words, and that person is supposed to come up with a third word that somehow connects the two. Okay, so let's try that. Can you give me a word, any word? Some noun. Um, seven. Seven. Okay. Seven. And a second word. Or maybe I'll, I use a second word. Let's okay. say peppermint. Peppermint. Wow. Peppermint. Okay. okay. Peppermint. <laughs> so what's the connecting word between seven and peppermint? What do you think? Uh, I'm stumped. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an app I so can what use? do we get here? The third word that connects seven and peppermint is lies. The reason why lies connects these two words is that the popular book and movie franchise Harry Potter features the character Albus Dumbledore, and he keeps it pensive. And pensive allows him to extract things. I'm skipping ahead here. And there's a Tom Riddle and... Balthazar Slytherin, and in the memory, he tells Harry that Tom Riddle tracked down and murdered a person and their house elves, and there's a curse there, and the word lies connects both Seven and Peppermint because the ring that ultimately caused Dumbledore's death had been passed through the Gaunt family for seven generations with each pair contributing to its dark and cursed history. So he's, he's going off on a branch here. But, you know, it comes across in perfectly eloquent natural language. And, you know, I just, you know, last year before I encountered that, I would have not thought that I can see something like that in my lifetime. This level of understanding the quirks of natural language and responding to that. So what does it leave education where does it leave you as a professor or your colleagues in in how you engage with your students well it's a huge challenge um one of one of the important uh, educational theorists benjamin bloom published a paper in in uh, 1980 where he described that students who were taught with one-on-one tutoring and a somewhat specialized curriculum. Those students performed on average two standard deviations better than their classmates who had not been taught in this way. Two standard deviations, that's about two full grade averages. This means a student who was a C-level student now becomes an A-level student. A student who would have failed the course 
um, becomes really respectable with a B or C. So this is hugely significant. Now, the problem is, well, you know, if we understand that, why are we not doing it? And Bloom said, well, we, we're not doing this because we can't afford it. We understand that personalized tuition is really, really useful, but we can't afford paying for it. And I think this equation is changing. I've just developed a little proof of concept where I use a simple spreadsheet, um, a simple spreadsheet that um, you can personalize as a student. You can you can enter your your preferences, your weaknesses, what type of a learner you are. Um, the instructor enters a little bit about the course and some of the course objectives, and then this puts together a prompt um, for ChatGPT to write an assignment. So we give the prompt to ChatGPT. <coughs> ChatGPT writes an assignment. We can look at that. We can give that to the student and says, well, maybe, you know, this is a possible assignment, but maybe it's not brilliant. Can you improve it? So then the student engages with the assignment. They, they learn to think about what they're even supposed to do. They don't blindly follow instructions. They make these instructions their own. And in the end result, hopefully, they come up with something that they actually like to do. So they take ownership of the assignment. They have agency for the assignment. And it's a much, much stronger way to, to learn about things enabled by having a computer program that can personalize things. Yeah. So I think this is where the future is going to go. We have, we have a device that is patient. We have a device that is creative. We have a device that, that can um, structure things and, and, and highlight things. And we can use it in, in completely novel ways to make learning that's appropriate for the, for the student right. because the student can now have a role in developing their own learning needs. And that scale. Yeah. You know, this one-on-one -on -one learning doesn't scale. Um, if, if students use ChatGPT to write their essays and I just grade them in the normal way, um, that doesn't scale either because I need so much more time to read them. Thanks so much for this. There you go, Boris Stipe of the University of Toronto. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.